from UNH Cooperative Extension. This is Overinformed on IPM. Hey there, podcast listeners. This week's pest is near and dear to my heart because one of my first jobs in entomology working for Doug Pfeiffer was to drive down the mountain from Blacksburg, Virginia, down to the Piedmont to study codling moths and other tortricid moths attacking apple orchards. I got to help collect data for a bunch of experiments that the Pfeiffer lab had cooking up at the time. Uh, we were also helping companies develop mating disruption for codling moth and organal fruit moth, a, a related species. We've talked a little bit about mating disruption in the past. Uh, in a nutshell, you fill an orchard with so much sex pheromone that the male moths can't find the female moths and they can't find that someone special to settle down with and start a family and well, you see where that goes. The synthetic version of these sex pheromones are not cheap. So we were helping these companies figure out exactly how much pheromone needs to be put out in the orchard to achieve the goal of um, stopping these moths from creating families. Uh, we were also playing around a little bit with delivery systems, uh, usually some kind of plastic doohickey where the pheromone is embedded in that plastic and the material slowly releases. One technology back then that we had been playing around with, a company asked us to help with one experiment with these little plastic chips, like tiny plastic chips, again, embedded with pheromone. Um, and those chips could be sprayed into the canopy with like a gluey material using specialized equipment that was put on the back of a tractor or more likely on the back of a four-wheeler, something that can move really fast. And in some cases on the back of a helicopter, if that's what you're into. And I remember meeting this guy who was traveling from out west to set up the experiment in the Charlottesville area. He was in a very bad mood as he was not prepared for the weather, the awesome power of central Virginia humidity. And this guy, well, he was uh, he was coming in hot, both literally and figuratively. He was sweating and cursing as he struggled to get his gear to work. He had to retrofit everything for these huge trees, quote unquote, huge trees. Um, they were semi-dwarf trees, but to him coming from the West Coast, they were huge. Um, I remember running down to a gas station to get him a Gatorade. I felt so bad for him and thinking, if this guy has a heart attack, I'm going to come back to this gas station to call 911. <laughs> and it's important to point out, I did not own a cell phone at this time, if that helps you place this moment in history. You know, of course, orchardists have been dealing with codling moths since before cell phones. And of course, orchardists have been dealing with codling moths since they've been growing apples, really. Codling moth is the literal worm in the apple, the OG fruit pest. As first described by Carl Linnaeus himself in 1758, codling moth likely originated in Europe and was first introduced to North America in the mid-1700s. Nowadays, this moth lives just about everywhere that apples are grown. And even though the advent of modern pesticides has allowed other pest complexes to perhaps supersede codling moth as the most important apple pest, this pest is still a major problem in apple orchards. You can find Dr. Eden's pest fact sheet two on codling moth in our extension website with some photos to help you with identification, but here are the basics. 
codling moth lays its eggs on or near developing apple fruit. The resulting larvae bore into those fruit all the way to the center of the apple, leaving behind a telltale trail of frass, aka bug poop. Um, it kind of looks like dark sawdust. They overwinter as mature caterpillars. Codling moth will then pupate in the early spring, and the first generation flight occurs about a month after that, depending on temperature. These guys are ectotherms after all. Eggs are laid singly on leaves near fruits. Incubation of those eggs takes about seven to eight days, again, depending on temperature. The larvae may feed on the leaves, but they will soon enter into the fruit, usually by the calyx or blossom end. By mid-July, the larvae leave the fruit and pupate either on the trees or in the soil below trees. The second adult flight period then begins in late July to early August. The second period of larval feeding is during August and September. The second generation has the greatest potential for damage, but time and control measures for both peak flight periods can be really critical for nipping local populations in the bud. How do you do that, you ask? I needed some help answering this question. My name is Peter Yench. I work as an entomologist at the Hudson Valley Research Laboratory in Highland, New York. We're a satellite research station of Cornell's Agritech. If you wouldn't mind walking through a season with me and like basically like how do you monitor, how do you make decisions, how do you use monitoring tools for codling moth? So in New York, in the Hudson Valley, um, codling moth is a reoccurring theme. You know, most of the damage we're seeing right now over the packing line, if there's insect damage, it's going to be calling moth injury. So that said, the growers are taking a real conservative approach. We're, we're trying to get growers to acknowledge whether or not they have <laughs> calling moth injury, you know, if they actually know about it. And if, if, they're, if historically they're seeing calling moth injury that exceeds in a wholesale block, 5%. I'm not sure that's a, that's a moving number. In, in, if your block is Honeycrisp or any of the premier varieties getting top dollar, it's more like 1% or 2%. You know, so if you're seeing economic injury from calling moth, then th this is the way it works for us. We basically set traps at, at bloom for uh, pheromone traps for calling moth. We usually put, you know, one block in 10 acres is, is usually sufficient for us on a commercial farm. And when we have sustained capture, then we, we work on the newest site for monitoring um, degree day occurrence and predictive hatch of first generation. And then usually that, that occurs, you know, between first and second cover. So that first application is gonna go on, usually at first cover because you're oftentimes spraying for plum curculio at the same time. But the material that you put in for calling moth, we're recommending that growers use something like Altacore because controlling the first generation is the crux of the climb. If you miss first generation, you're screwed. You know, you, there's no catching up for calling moth because it's so endemic and it's so pervasive then throughout the orchard. So by using out the core in two applications, so first and second at, at the high labeled rate. So now the nozzle head comes out, you know, we're, we're basically going at this insect with both, both guns blazing. But those two applications will surround the, the first generation for the most part, unless 
the presence of Debbie Breath shows up and says, oh, what about the BP, you know? And then you start thinking, okay, well, what about the BP? You know, are you, are you overlapping with that second spray enough of that second wave of adult emergence that you're able to cover the eggs? And if you're not, then you really need to keep an eye out on things. So then you do the same thing for the second generation. This time, you don't need to be as judicious. You look at the trap numbers, you see what the trap numbers are. I think Debbie was using uh, a, a fairly conservative number as well. I'm not sure if it was five or 10 per trap per week as the trigger. But if you're catching less than five per week, then I wouldn't make an application. But if you're catching more than five or even exceeding 10, then you basically use the sustained trap catch, capture, you know, with, with the first insect caught as, as the beginning of the biofix for the second generation emergence window. And then putting on applications there, usually, you know, if you went with a sale because you have Apple Maggot at that point, that would be a really good fit because now you're not putting on anything um, above and beyond that. If you've had just abysmal uh, collie moth applications, then coming in with something like Delegate would be the way to go, or Exaril, or if you really want to spend more money, go with the Cyclantronilaprol and you know be done with it. <laughs> um, so I'm, I think that a sale still works really well with collie moth, but because we use it year after year after year for apple maggot, Apple maggots got less, less of a chance to become resistant because it's not endemic. It's the endemic pests, the ones that reside in the orchard that are exposed to this with each generation. That's where we might run into problems. And I think that's what we're seeing in the Hudson Valley. It's just not so much resistance, but loss of susceptibility, you know, with a sale. So coming in with delegate typically is what they do with oblique banded leaf roller, you know, for that second generation. And that sort of cleans up that population. So in the words of Alan Eaton, is that clear as mud? <laughs> and also, I have to say it. Uh, I know I'm a broken record, but I really mean it. Pesticides must be applied only as directed on the label to be in compliance with the law. Read those labels, guys. And during this conversation, Peter and I obviously are using trade names of products. It should go without saying, but Extension does not promote the use of individual commercial products. If you have any questions about the active ingredients of these products, especially if you'd like more information on generic versions, give your extension specialist a holler. If you're in New Hampshire, that's me, give me a holler. But what about if you're looking for an alternative? It's a little pricey, but mating disruption could save you some time and some heartache. Back to Peter on shifting to mating disruption for codling moth management. If you really wanna, if you really wanna, wanna move forward, then you cross the bridge and you go into pheromone mating disruption. So Trace A now I think has 38 ties per acre that picks up OFM and collie moth together. You're putting those on at bloom and then you're running the season with a mating disruption program. First year you'd come in and you'd probably go after that first generation, the endemic generation again. But then in successive years, just keep using the pheromone mating disruption program. I think you're going to be really satisfied with that. So that's the goal. That's what we're yeah. So something I'm kind of dancing around with some of my people is that like, especially if you're thinking about transferring over to mating disruption is that you have to kind of start out with a mop up year. So right. using mating disruption or not, 
you're gonna have years where you're like, yeah, my endemic codling moth population's out of control. I have to get really serious. I can't just rely on collateral damage from my cover sprays. I'm gonna start timing it and clean it up as well as I can. I mean, how often yes. do these mop up years happen? Um, like, what are the indicators that you're looking? So, like, so if you're doing mating disruption, what are you looking for to indicate that you have to do a mop up year? That's a good question. Um, I think I think if you're going to transition to mating disruption for calling moth, now, I don't think that would be true with dogwood borer, um, but I, I think with with calling moth you you should go in with first generation both guns blazing on top of your baiting disruption but then for the second generation so there's a there's a couple of i think caveats in this if you're not seeing any injury uh come the end of june from collimoth then you know that your mop up whatever that was two shots of alticor plus mating disruption did its job so going into second generation you could probably lay back on you know on the f-16s and and just just go in with reliance on the mating disruption and then keeping an eye on those traps a close eye on the traps because if all of a sudden you start catching them in the traps um typically we see one or two you know they just happen to sort of stumble into the bar but you know if you're not seeing any any catch in there i'd, I'd feel comfortable just moving forward through the end of the season and you're going to be using a sale most likely for uh, apple maggot and that'll pick up whatever residual and if you happen <laughs> if you're really judicious to time that for that first uh, emergence for the second generation and you're catching you're going after maggot at the same time then you're lining things up a little more effectively you know if need be so that that's the way i would lean toward toward managing that the first year and then the second year i mean i i wouldn't do anything really at uh at first cover if or, or second cover if uh, your plum curculio situation, you reach your 308 degree days and and you're all done with the residual needed for plum curculio, you're out of the woods, um, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs>
the University of New Hampshire, New Hampshire counties, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.eu.